Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright, Constable, and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to surety claims professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Here is your host, Michael Stover. Welcome, everybody, to uh, this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety and Fidelity Law Group here at Wright Council and Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm joined today by Justin Thatch from our Richmond, Virginia office. As always, uh, I'd like to open up the episodes with a big thank you to everyone uh, for your support of Surety Today. Uh, we ask that you uh, pass along our uh, contact information to any colleagues who you think may be interested in calling in or checking out one of the podcasts. Remember, you can listen to any one uh, or all of the prior 59 episodes of Surety Today anytime, anywhere, from any one of our multiple platforms. Uh, Surety Today page on our website at WCSLaw.com. There's a podcast at Spotify, Amazon Music, uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean. Just search for Surety Today. And on our uh, microsite at SuretyToday.net. Uh, so far, we've had over 4,702 downloads of our podcast, so lots of folks uh, getting in. Uh, as always, we have uh, muted the line um, to avoid the background noise, and we'll unmute the line at the end uh, for any questions. And um, today, we will be pro providing a surety case law update. Justin and I have scoured the cases from the past 10 months or so. Uh, to find a few uh, hand-picked cases that we hope will be of interest to you. Uh, as you might expect, the number of cases were pretty slim compared to non-COVID years, uh, what with the courts being shut down or in limited capacity because of the pandemic. Uh, but the first case that, that I wanted to talk to before I turn it over to Justin uh, is a case that's not a, a formally reported opinion. Uh, last week, Justin was able to, to beat down a summary judgment motion here in Maryland uh, the principal, the roofer, went out of business and was terminated on the bonded contract. The surety took over, completed the work. In the process of the completion work, the surety corrected numerous items of defective work. An alleged uh, subcontractor to the principal filed suit under the Little Miller Act payment bond. This claimant was responsible for some of the defective work that the surety was forced to correct. Accordingly, the surety asserted its costs uh, in correcting the defective work as set off against the payment bond claim. Claimant moved for uh, summary judgment as to the set-off, asserting that the surety was barred from se setting off the corrective work cost because the surety allegedly did not give notice and an opportunity to cure to the claimant. Justin was able to argue that the, the surety, as a takeover surety, had no obligation to the claimant under the Maryland law or under the terms of the subcontract. Further, the claimant was unlicensed and employed illegal aliens and failed to comply with numerous other contract requirements, which precluded the claimant from actually performing any corrective work on the project, even if they wanted to. Thus, the surety, you know, we, we just could not have allowed them to do that. Finally, the surety uh, did notify the claimant of the existence of the defective work when it originally denied the claimant's claim, and in response, the claimant filed suit. So, uh, of course, this case has no presidential value, but it's just nice to have a nice fresh win, and thank you to Justin. And now I turn uh, the mic over to Justin. 
All right. Well, thank you, Mike. And uh, yeah, it's always nice to have a good win. As, as Mike knows, and I'm sure a lot of you know, especially in state court, some wonky things can happen sometimes. So uh, uh, it, it was good that that turned out favorably and hope the rest of the case can as well. Um, so I have a few cases I'd like to talk about today. Um, uh, and kind of the thought I had in looking at these, especially as an attorney, is sometimes um, you, you get some uh, entertainment value a little bit or just some, uh, you know, educational value out of some of the arguments that lawyers uh, and folks choose to make in some of these surety cases. And I, and I think some of the uh, cases I'm going to talk about today are going are to highlight that. Uh, the first one is on the performance bond side of things, um, uh, and namely uh, about uh, conditions precedent to the performance bond. Uh, so this one was from February 12th of 2021 uh, up in the federal court, the U.S. District Court for the District of Massachusetts, and it was Arch Insurance Company uh, versus Graphic Builders, LLC. Um, and I think it's currently still a little fresh to actually be reported, um, but it is available on Westlaw and Lexis. Uh, so just some quick background. Um, Graphic Builders uh, was a contractor building an apartment building up in Boston uh, who subcontracted with a company called RCM to provide modular construction work on the project. Uh, Arch issued its performance bond for RCM, so the subcontractor, and that was a uh, 20, 2010 version of the A312 performance bond. After RCM went ahead and fabricated, delivered, and began installing these units, um, graphic builders began complaining of some defects, namely that the windows were leaking and that some of the uh, module exterior walls were misaligned. Notably, however, Graphic Builders did not terminate its subcontract with RCM because um, that, and, and this is in Graphic Builders' own words, quote, would be the equivalent of shooting itself in the face. Um, and uh, instead, Graphic Builders uh, unilaterally arranged for other subs to come in and remediate RCM's work um, at a cost of almost $3 million. Um, now, Section 3 of this bond set forth the, the conditions on which the obligations of the surety would arise, and those were, number one, that graphic builders provide notice to RCM and the surety that it was considering declaring a contractor default, number two, that they actually do declare that default, terminate the construction contract, and notify the surety, and then three, that Graphic Builders agreed to pay the balance of the uh, contract price in accordance of, with the terms of the contract to the surety or to the uh, completion contractor. Um, so here, Graphic Builders notified Arch and RCM that it was considering default, so check off the first one on the list there. Um, however, in a, in a later letter sent to both, Graphic Builders declared RCM in default but specifically stated it was, quote, not yet terminating its subcontract with RCM. Um, and ultimately, they decided uh, not to terminate. Now, what um, graphic builders argued in this case 
was that um, the performance bond distinguished between one, claims that require the surety to complete the work on the project for which termination of the subcontract is a condition precedent, and two, claims that simply require the surety to reimburse um, the obligee graphic um, builders for damages caused um, by RCM's breach, which it claimed there was no condition precedent. Um, and this distinction was allegedly based on the fact that the, the subcontract authorized the obligee to correct deficiencies and seek indemnity from the subcontractor uh, without termination. However, the court here ultimately granted summary judgment uh, in Arch's favor, um, finding that the language of the bond was clear and unambiguous and that terminating RCM's subcontract was a condition precedent to Arch's obligations. Um, the court found that graphic builders had materially breached the performance bond by failing to satisfy this condition precedent um, and granted summary judgment um, both in Arch's favor on, on the deck action that it filed um, and on uh, counterclaims that were filed. Um, and, and the court essentially said that there was no provision in the bond or the incorporated subcontract um, that distinguished between the claims um, as, as to which claims condition precedent would apply to and which wouldn't. So it, it essentially um, completely slapped away uh, the argument by the obligee that there was a, some kind of distinguishing situation between when um, there would be a condition precedent to terminate the contract and when there wouldn't. Um, and, and essentially they made one last kind of ditch effort to oppose summary judgment um, saying that the, the, the contract could not be terminated because RCM had substantially completed the contract. Uh, however, the, the subcontract contained specific language um, that gave the obligee the right to terminate RCM uh, up into, uh, and the, the work was, quote, fully completed. Um, so essentially what the court said is, okay, we, 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 you're making this argument, however, the um, language of the, of the subcontract says that you're allowed to terminate them until the work is fully completed, uh, not just substantially completed. Um, and just kind of lastly, uh, in addition to that other earlier quote, um, there, the judge really uh, latched on to a kind of a couple of what I would call funny quotes from the record, which is uh, the graphic builders, the obligee here, admitted that it didn't terminate RCM uh, because doing so did not give them the quote, warm and fuzzies. Um, so the, the court's recitation was a little bit, uh, didn't have a lot of the specifics of that, but uh, for whatever reason, the obligee did not choose to terminate the contract um, despite uh, the, the bonds provision requiring it, um, and therefore um, the, the court found that the surety was not, was not obligated uh, and granted summary judgment in its favor. Uh, so I will now swing it back to Mike for his first case and I'll uh, talk to you again soon. All right, Justin, thanks. So the first case uh, that I'd like to discuss involves a surety's claim for negligent misrepresentation against the principal's accountant. 
So the case is uh, Platte River Insurance Company versus Joseph P. Melvin Company. Uh, in this case, a federal district court in Pennsylvania held that the bonded principal's surety properly stated a negligent misrepresentation claim against an accounting firm that audited the principal's financial statement. The principal was in the business of designing and installing custom metal staircases, railings, and other you know, metalwork products for construction and renovation projects. An accounting firm audited the principal's 2017 financial statements and issued an audit report. The report included a statement that the principal's work in progress, as shown on an attached schedule to the financial statements, reflected that the principal's construction contracts had been and were expected to remain generally profitable. Shortly thereafter, the principal was awarded a construction contract and Platte River issued a performance bond and a payment bond. Platte River alleged that it issued the bonds in reliance on that audited financial statement. The next year, the accounting firm issued an audit report for the principal's 2018 financial statements. The audit report disclosed significant operating losses and raised substantial doubt about the principal's ability to continue as a going concern. The audit report further stated that, quote, it was a failure to adequately monitor the progress of certain contracts and the gross profit estimates were significantly reduced in 2018. Therefore, losses were recognized on several contracts during 2018. As a result of these losses, the company has negative stockholders' equity and current liabilities exceed uh, current assets, otherwise known as insolvent. So not long after the 2018 audit report was issued, Platte River was notified that its principal had been declared in default and the bonded contract was terminated. Demand was made for Platte River to perform under the performance bond. Now the surety filed suit against the accounting firm asserting, as I said, negligent misrepresentation. Platte River pointed to a draft financial statement and the work in progress schedule for the period ended December 31st, 2018, which was prepared by the accountant. The schedule reflect, reflected an approximate $10 million revenue adjustment booked in 2018 due to work in progress completion errors as compared to the 2017 financial statement. In response to the surety's complaint, the accounting firm moved to dismiss. So that's, this case is about a, a motion to dismiss. The Pennsylvania has adopted Section 552 of the Restatement Second of Torts, which sets forth the elements of a negligent misrepresentation claim. Under Section 552, a plaintiff must allege, one, that a misrepresentation of a material fact was made, two, that the misrepresentation was made under circumstances in which the defendant ought to have known of its falsity, three, that the misrepresentation was made with an intent to induce another to act on it, and then four, that the misrepresentation resulted in injury to the party acting in justifiable reliance on the misrepresentation. In denying the motion to dismiss, the court held that the surety adequately alleged material misrepresentations in the 2017 audit report. Specifically, Platte River alleged that the 2017 financial statement overstated the value of the principal's contracts by $10 million due to these completion errors. The court further held that Platte River adequately alleged that its reliance on the 2017 audit report was foreseeable to the accountants. Court stated that a negligent misrepresentation claim does not require the defendant to have had actual knowledge of the plaintiff's intended reliance. Rather, foreseeable reliance is sufficient. The evidence in the case suggested that the accountant was actually aware that the principal would provide the 2017 audit report to its surety. Even though 
Platte River disputed its obligations under the surety bond, and that dispute was the subject of ongoing litigation in another case, the court held that Platte River had alleged sufficient damages in the form of significant attorney's fees in its litigation over its obligations under those surety bonds. So the surety didn't, have, didn't pay out a loss on its bonds, but it incurred other costs in fighting the claims, and the court held that was a, a sufficient amount of damages to support the claim. So claims against third-party professionals like accountants, architects, and engineers uh, can be a good source of, of salvage, but they can also be difficult because of the economic loss rule and uh, the requirement of privity in some jurisdictions. However, in jurisdictions where Section 552 of the restatement has been adopted, such as Pennsylvania, or where the strict requirement of privity has been abandoned or relaxed, such claims may be asserted. In May of 2019, uh, we did an episode of Surety Today on the surety's claims against the project architects. So if you go to our website at wcslaw.com, you'll find the white paper uh, discussing the issues related to suing professionals such as accountants and architects. In this case, the issues were discussed in the context of a motion to dismiss, as I said, so the allegations in the complaint were taken as true uh, and in favor of the surety. And, and the court held that the surety pled sufficient evidence uh, that the accountants were lax in their auditing duties, were aware uh, that the auditing reports were being used to obtain bonding, and therefore uh, satisfy the elements of Section 552 of the Restatement of Torts. Uh, Justin, turn it over to you. All right, thanks, Mike. Um, staying on my topic, I guess, of the day, which is um, performance bonds and conditions precedent, uh, I'm now moving to a state court case from uh, our friends in Texas. Um, and this is actually an intermediate appellate court um, opinion. And the case of this one from April 14th of 2021, just a few months ago, is a Zerga, Z-E-R-G-A, Finker LP versus Hartford Fire Insurance Company. Um, and so here, some quick background. Zerga, as I will refer to them here, uh, was the owner of two senior living facility projects uh, in Texas. And the, the contractor um, here or I guess the principal here for Hartford was HMC Contracting Services. And so Zerga and HMC each entered two standard AIA A133 contracts for each project. And then Hartford went ahead and executed performance and payment bonds for each of the two projects. Um, for kind of the purposes of the remainder of this discussion, uh, everything was being the same, so it was really two separate projects, but kind of were, were handled together. So um, the underlying contracts here uh, for these performance bonds contained identical provisions requiring Zerga to produce financial information uh, upon the written request of HMC under certain conditions. And uh, what those were um, and what the relevant provision says is that the owner provide reasonable evidence that the owner has made financial arrangements to fulfill the owner's obligations under the contract. Uh, and the times that it was, was to do that was if the owner failed to make payments to the contractor, uh, there was a change in the work that materially changes the contract sum, uh, or 
the contractor identifies in writing a reasonable concern regarding owner's ability to make payment when due. So essentially under these uh, circumstances, the contractor could write to the owner and say, hey, I'm, I'm a little bit worried um, about whether you're going to actually have the money to pay us. Um, and then what the owner would have to do is, quote, the owner shall furnish such evidence as a condition precedent to commencement or continuation of the work or the portion of the work affected by a material change. So the contractor can write and say, hey, I, I want to see some financial documentation to kind of make me feel better. And what this contract revision says is that the owner essentially has to provide that as a condition to either the work beginning or continuing if one of these things happens. Um, so what happened here was, I guess, prior to the lawsuit being filed, uh, there was a dispute arose between Zerga and HMC um, during uh, construction of the projects over various issues, but namely uh, delays, uh, change orders, and payments. Um, and what Hartford claimed at this stage was that Zerga had initiated and approved several change orders that increased the amount that Zerga was going to owe to HMC under the contracts. So because of that, um, that kind of checked the box on number two, which is a change in the work that materially changed the contract some. And so HMZ wrote to Zerga and said, hey, I, I want some evidence that you've made financial arrangements to fulfill your obligations under the contracts, uh, given that you initiated these change orders that increase the amount um, that you'll have to pay us. And uh, after some back and forth, Zerga failed to provide any information. However, despite, and remember going back to that condition precedent language we just talked about, um, despite Zerga's failure to provide the information, HMC continued its work on the projects. Um, a little more time passed and Zerga sent a letter to HMC alleging kind of all, all kinds of breaches by HMC for uh, failing to provide enough skilled labor, failing to pay subcontractors, failing to complete the projects timely and abandoning the projects. Uh, and so uh, claims were made by Zerga to Hartford on the bonds um, by which Hartford uh, went ahead and uh, denied liability, saying that Zerga had failed to satisfy the condition precedent in the contract uh, by providing these financial assurances. Um, so it, it kind of got a little interesting procedurally there because the Hartford filed a motion for summary judgment on that ground, um, which the Texas trial court originally denied. However, um, Hartford then went and filed a motion to reconsider um, the earlier ruling. Uh, and essentially what, what HMC argued was that uh, Hartford and, and and HMC, you waived your right to raise this defense because uh, we didn't provide you the information and you went ahead and kept working on the project anyway, where the condition precedent language says it's a condition precedent to you commencing or continuing work. So the court actually originally denied it on those grounds. However, Hartford filed a motion requesting the court reconsider it and it cited to the contract's no waiver language which said, no action or failure to act by the owner, uh, architect, or contractor shall constitute a waiver of a right or duty afforded them under the contract. 
Um, so essentially, this is one of these provisions you'll see uh, where it essentially said no act or failure to act will waive any of your rights under the contract. Well, after seeing that in, in what's, uh, in, in my view, kind of a rare occurrence, the trial court said, yep, you know what, we got that wrong. We're going to go ahead and grant your summary judgment motion. Um, and so uh, that Zerga went ahead and then appealed that uh, decision, which was then um, upheld by the appellate court. Um, and what the court essentially said was that Zerga's failure to produce the financial information could not be waived, and the production of financial information was a condition precedent to HMC's continuation of the work. Um, therefore, HMC did not default on the contract, and Hartford's denial of liability was justified. Um, Zerga essentially tried to say that the no waiver provision should not have been dispositive um, of, of the issue, uh, to which the appellate court disagreed and stated that as a general rule, um, non-waiver provisions are binding and enforceable in Texas and that public policy strongly favors the freedom of contract and indicates that court should respect and enforce the terms of a contract absent compelling reasons not to do so. Um, there was also an argument by Zerga that there was a, an individual um, who was actually a, a principal of both HMZ and Zerga, and that essentially he knew about both sides. Um, the court kind of paid that uh, short shrift and essentially said that there was insufficient evidence uh, put forward um, to make any kind of contrary findings on those grounds. Um, essentially, too, it, it was beginning to raise a parole evidence issue about uh, what uh, folks potentially knew outside of the terms of the contract. And the court essentially said, we're going to rely on the, the plain language of these provisions of the contract um, moving forward. So uh, that was just another interesting case that I found um, I, on kind of a condition precedent you don't always see all the time uh, regarding the owner's provisions of uh, financial information. Um, in, in the contract and not the bond, but of course, uh, and we'll have to presume, I think, that uh, the, the contract was incorporated into the bond there, um, to which the surety uh, used successfully in, in, in defending this, um, in addition to the no waiver language that was very key here. Um, so takeaways, too, is, you know, in, in contracts, be on the lookout for those types of no waiver um, provisions and uh, what you know, the jurisdictions that you're practicing in or dealing with, uh, how courts are going to treat those types of no waiver provisions. Because uh, at least here in Texas, um, they, they are going to be upheld and enforced. So uh, I will now turn it back to Mike. All right, thanks, Justin. Yeah, and I've seen cases where they've gone the other way on those uh, non-waiver clauses. Uh, but anyway, next case uh, I'll discuss is the Pickard and Butters Construction versus County of Santa Cruz. And uh, this regards the surety's right to settle a principal's claims. In this case, the principal entered into a construction contract with the County of Santa Cruz and the surety issued the payment of performance bonds. As consideration for those and other bonds issued on its behalf, the principal and others executed a general indemnity agreement in favor of the surety. As is typical, the GAI permitted the surety to demand collateral security on the bonds upon a notice of claim or a lawsuit asserting liability. 
The GAI also assigned uh, the principal's rights under the bonded contract to the surety upon the principal's default. The surety um, defined default in the GAI as including failure to deposit collateral security upon demand. In addition, the GAI also authorized the surety to decide and determine in its sole discretion whether any claim, liability, suit, or judgment brought against the surety or any bond would be paid, you know, compromised, resisted, appealed, whatever. Uh, in connection with such rights, the indemnity agreement authorized the surety to act as the principal's attorney in fact to execute any release required to reach a claim settlement. Over a period of three years, the surety investigated and paid over 100 claims, totaling nearly $1.4 million, including $605,000 to resolve 29 bond claims on the Santa Cruz County project alone. The surety made a written demand for collateral security in 2016 to the principal in the amount of $1.4 million. The principal did not post the collateral or respond in writing to the demand. The surety sued the principal for breach of the indemnity agreement and reimbursement. At the same time, disputes between the principal and Santa Cruz County arose over change orders and delays. The county denied the principal's claim of $890,000, and the principal filed suit in the Santa Cruz County Superior Court. Just before trial in that case, the county attempted to settle with the principal, but the principal refused. The county then approached the surety regarding settlement. The surety was not a party in that, um, in that lawsuit between uh, Santa Cruz and um, the principal, so the surety uh, intervened in that case and then entered into a settlement with the county the day before the trial date. The surety then filed a motion to enforce the settlement in that litigation and to dismiss the case. The surety argued in its motion that the settlement agreement should be enforced and the lawsuit dismissed because the principal was in default on the indemnity agreement, failed to comply with the surety's demand for collateral. The surety noted that the indemnity agreement assigned the principal's rights uh, against the county and gave the surety the right to settle the lawsuit. The principal opposed the motion to enforce the settlement and argued that the surety had materially breached the indemnity agreement by acting in bad faith, by paying indemnity claims over the principal's objections, refusing to intervene at the outset of the case against the county and participating in the litigation, and then intervening and settling the instant case secretly after the principal incurred trial prep costs. So uh, let's see where we uh, the principal also argued that the court should find the indemnity agreement unenforceable under the equitable doctrine of latches because the surety sat on its rights for over three years, during which uh, time the principal incurred several hundred thousands of dollars in litigation expenses related to the multiple projects. The principal further contended that the settlement was unjust because it was less than half of what the principal was prepared to prove at trial. Trial court found that the principal was in default under the indemnity agreement by failing to pay the amounts claimed by its subcontractors and uh, also in default because it failed to respond to the collateral demand. In addition, the trial court found that the assignment clause was valid and that all the principal's rights and claims against the county were assigned to the surety and that the surety uh, had in its sole discretion as the attorney in fact the ability to settle those claims. The lawsuit filed by the surety against the principal was still pending at, at the as the trial court noted, and the court said that you know enforcement of the settlement agreement and dismissal of the county litigation did not prejudice or foreclose any bad faith breach of contract claims that the principal may want to assert against the surety in that litigation. 
Accordingly, the, the trial court upheld the settlement. The appellate court affirmed the ruling on appeal. Although the settlement was, uh, was upheld and the principal's case against the county was dismissed, the surety may still have to face the alleged bad faith arguments in the surety principal litigation. I had an identical, the identical case. I mean, it was, it was very, very similar uh, here in Maryland where the surety settled the principal's claims in the, in the litigation involving a, a local government agency over the objection of the principal. The principal then raised bad faith in the case between the principal and the surety. Maryland imposes a reasonableness standard on the surety's settlement of claims in general, and we had to go back and prove that the settlement of the claims was reasonable and that the payments made by the surety were reasonable. We ultimately prevailed in that case. But sometimes, even though you have the right to settle a principal's claims under the indemnity agreement, you have to consider whether the costs and the repercussions of doing so, uh, you know, are worthwhile when you get into the... Uh, to the responding bad faith arguments that you're going to eventually see. Uh, we are, I think, at time right now. Um, so why don't we just go ahead and close up? I think Justin maybe had another case. but uh, So before I open the line for any questions, I want to let everyone know that the next edition of Surety Today will be on Monday, July 12th at 1230. And we will have our special guest, Ms. Julia Lean, from the Surety Fidelity Association of America, and they're going to talk to us uh, about what the SFAA is up to and, and what they're seeing out there in the, in the land of surety. Uh, the Philadelphia Surety Claim Association held its annual golf outing on June 7th at the Ballot Golf Course in Philadelphia. I was not able to attend, but I was told there were over 100 people present, which is uh, really good in these COVID times. Uh, the Surety Claims Institute will be holding its annual meeting in Park City, Utah, on June 23rd and 25th. And then another shameless plug uh, for a book, uh, the FSLC has published uh, its new book titled Surety Aspects of Bankruptcy Law and Practice. George Backrack and I authored chapter six of that book titled Surety Claims and Bankruptcy. This book was intended to be a, a resource not just for the surety industry, but for the bankruptcy bar and the bankruptcy bench. So be sure to visit the FSLC website and add a copy of this new book to your library. Again, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. Thank you, Justin, for helping out. Uh, now I'm going to unmute the line for any questions. Okay, we're in talk mode. So if somebody wants to ask a question, please help us. Anybody? All right. Justin, what was the name of the very first case we talked about with the surety setup? Oh no, that was that was that was our uh, that was our case in. Um, in, in Maryland State Court, it was just a trial court opinion. Uh, okay. it, it, it's, not, it, it's nothing reported. Not, not published. Okay. Thanks. All right, everybody. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable, and Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety-today.